every single call they have with their coaches. I want to spend one hour a week working on the business, not in the business. And then you meet a month later and you say, how'd it go? And they say, I, to be honest with you, it was such a busy month, I didn't do it. And say, okay, well, do you, is that because you don't want to do it? Or is it because something else happened? They say, oh no, I want to do it. It just got really busy. And you say, okay, well, what do you need to do to do it this week? And they say, I just need to do it for the professional coach. Never, never, never accept that answer. Well, hey there, if we have not yet met, my name is Alex Judd. I'm the founder of Path for Growth, and this is the Path for Growth podcast. Now, as a business, we exist to help impact-driven leaders step into who they were created to be so that others benefit and God is glorified. And this podcast is just another iteration of how that mission comes to life. Well, we are jumping back into this series on seven mistakes amateur coaches make. And it was in episode one of this series that we highlighted the first three. Uh, number one, we dogpile action items if we're not careful. Number two, we, we have this anticipation that we're going to hit a grand slam with every single meeting or every single call. And then number three is obviously lack of preparation. Before we jump into four, five, six, and seven, uh, I'm joined by our coaching manager, Olivia Graham again. Olivia, I'd love just to get your thoughts again on why this topic is so important for us to focus on. And specifically, why is it important for maybe business owners, business leaders that may not play the formal role of coach, but that do believe into that idea of every great leader is a great coach. Yeah, I I hope that in light of that, we link in the show notes, the, the link to the series, Great Leaders Are Great Coaches, because you, you hit the nail on the head. If you're a business owner, if you're a leader within a business, then in some form or fashion, you're putting the hat on of coach. And I can guarantee that if you were to look at this list of seven, even if you're not a formal coach, you'd say, oh, I've, I've probably done at least one of these in my time. And so I think that it's, it's interesting filming this second episode because since we filmed the first, I've actually trained a new coach. And with this in my mind, I'm realizing how much further along someone can be as a coach if they just proactively hear this list of seven, because you don't even sometimes realize that you do these things until it's pointed out at you. So I'm just so thankful we're going to have this two-part series because it's going to make a world of difference. That's right. There's something about naming something that gives us power to then focus on it, obviously correct for it. One of the other things that stands out to me as why I think this content can be really helpful is in many ways, when we wrote this outline, it was basically an exercise in thinking, what are the things leaders often do impulsively? Right. Like what are the things when we find ourselves in a development conversation with someone or a mentorship conversation with someone or in a one on one meeting? What are the things that just like if we're not stepping back and being thoughtful and intentional, we just jump in and do these things. And it's amateurs that often operate out of impulse. Conversely, I think it's professionals that operate from a posture of intentionality that they don't just operate on like what's easy, what's comfortable, what do I feel like doing? Rather, they've thought through what would be most effective ultimately in the goal of serving this person's best interest. Yeah, I think there is a huge aspect to slowing down and looking at the big picture of what you're aiming for. Because some of the things on this list are not necessarily, I could see coming from a place of like, I deeply desire to care and love for someone and I just don't maybe know the best way to coach them through it. So this is my reaction to it. 
So my hope is that after people hear this episode, they can just slow down, reflect, and then act from a place of, of wisdom. I think that's totally right. Uh, okay, let's jump in to number four, because I think that actually lays the foundation for number four really well. The fourth mistake that amateur coaches make is we, we focus on keeping more than serving. And so the idea here is that we're more obsessed with the idea of I need to sustain this relationship rather than I need to serve this person. I guess, Olivia, the first question I would ask you is why is this an impulse for amateurs? Why is this something that if we're not careful, this can be really easy for us to do? So when I look at it from the vantage point of the coaching team, this can be a a huge impulse because it affects their commission, right? And so I guess there's there's typically, if we were to walk this back, there's something that someone is deeply attached to that affects them very personally. And that could either be their pride, that could be a deep need that they need uh, filled in their business. It could be like dollars and cents. They need this person to perform because it makes them money or They get money because this person performs like there's typically a deep vested interest personally that affects someone to act in this way. And it makes complete sense to me why someone would act in this way. But what's what's interesting is honestly, unless you can step back and say, whose best interest am I operating in? Is it mine or the person I'm coaching? You generally can't start actually being a good coach until that answer is clear. That's exactly right. I actually thought about this just recently. We had a conversation with our first ever one-on-one coaching customer, Ben Stewart. He's just a a brilliant leader. And man, that conversation for the podcast was just so good for so many reasons. But one of the lessons that he said he had to learn from a leadership perspective, and I think he even highlighted that as a lesson that he had to learn the hard way, was that there's a difference between pleasing and leading. And I think that oftentimes in the realm of coaching can also get at the crux, right? Because if you're playing the role of coach, a lot of times you have a little bit of the motivational muscle in you, right? Like you can get people excited. You can make people smile. You can make people laugh. You can make people feel good. And obviously like that's a, that's a strength and that's a gift properly positioned, The emphasis there is on the idea of it when it's properly positioned. Improperly positioned, that means that you focus more on making people feel good or pleasing them or making them smile. And you start telling half-truths. You start not acknowledging things. You start not being fully open and transparent with someone about their business or the state of their personal growth because it's way more comfortable for you financially and uh, probably emotionally for you to just tell them what they want to hear. And oh my gosh, it's, it's a pitfall that I think amateurs make, but I think every professional has got to be really vigilant of is I'm here to serve this person. I'm my ultimate goal is not to keep them. Now I think with the right people, the best strategy for actually keeping them long term is serving them, right? Like, and we should remember that I guess before I go on from there, there's some undergirding principles that I'd like to highlight in that. But anything else you would highlight on that topic? Right. It's it's ironic that the thing that could hurt you the most is the thing that could benefit you the most if you play all out and serving them. Because it takes a lot of vulnerability and it's honestly really scary 
to look someone in the eye and tell them the full truth, regardless of you know what the situation is. But if someone is looking to you to coach, like no one hired Bill Belichick to say, oh, you only have to do half the sprints today. Because it's going to feel good. And so the same thing is true, whether you're hired to be a coach or you're just in the position as a leader, you have to do the full truth. I'd be interested to know if there's any other examples that you have on pleasing or keeping, focusing more on keeping than serving, like the tactics that we use uh, to do that. But before we get there, I guess one principle that stands out to me associated with this that we should always keep in mind is people ultimately, and, and we're saying ultimately here, so so we're extending our time horizon, people ultimately don't trust just what's nice, people trust what's true. And so if you want to be someone that people are trusting with the intimate details of their life, leadership, and business, if you want to be someone that people trust to offer guidance and direction, if you want to be someone that people trust with really deep, intentional conversation, well, then you better be practiced at telling them the truth. Because even little half lies, even little half truths, even you saying something that you don't actually fully buy into or agree with, uh, what I've seen is you never get away with that, right? Like you never, like there's never going to be a day where it's like, oh, well, that didn't come back to bite me. It will always come back to bite you. And people will then say, okay, well, if I couldn't trust them with that, can I trust them with this? And, and so the best strategy we have for serving people is telling them the truth in love. Mm, yeah. You asked for a way that I've seen this play out and what you just said made me think of one. We work with a lot of CEOs, but we also work with a lot of COOs who are coming to Path for Growth for coaching so that they can essentially build the vision of what the CEO is is giving to them. And I think the times I've seen a COO play all out in their role is when they're operating in exactly what you just said. You have a CEO who's essentially hired someone to do a number of things, but one of is point out my blind spots and call attention to them because there's no one else in the CEO's life who is seeing them as vulnerable and as kind of like naked in the streets as the COO is. And I've seen so many COOs get themselves into trouble because they're afraid to hurt the CEO's feelings. And I think that... You're doing, I heard Zach say this, and I've tried to operate in this as much as I can since hearing him say this, but you have to operate in such a way that you realize an option is you could get fired for it because you're being so honest and so forthcoming with what you believe is true that that could get someone really upset and they fire you for it. But that's you operating in their best interest. And I kind of try to approach the coaches with that same mentality of like, If you are playing all out coaching someone and they fire you for it, I'm never going to be mad. And you shouldn't either. So good. Because I would, the, 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 what you're telling yourself there, your line in the sand is I would rather get fired for serving someone's best interest than stay employed by someone that I'm not allowed to do that with. Right. And, And Uh, Like that is a big, bold, courageous move that looks a lot like integrity. And it's how you maintain your integrity in this role. So I love that you highlighted that. Okay, so mistake number four was focusing more on keeping these customers or 
pleasing these people rather than serving them. Let's go to number five. The fifth mistake that an amateur coach makes is we over-index on behavior change. So when I wrote this mistake on the outline, what I was really thinking of here is that so often, whenever you uh, kind of work with people in an ongoing relationship, like a coaching relationship, obviously, one of the things that we always focus on is that we want this to be directional, right? We're, we're, this is not a kumbaya circle, right? We're, we're being intentional about, okay, where are we at today? Where do we want to be? That's our current state and desired state out of where we want to be personally, professionally, in leadership, in business. What are the intentional actions that we need to take? And it's pretty amazing. I am susceptible to this. You're susceptible to this. All God's children are susceptible to this, that we can go day after day, week after week, month after month, and we have the best intentions of doing the things we said we would do, but not doing them. And, and I'm sure every single person recognizes themselves, even if you're good at execution, you recognize that there are some areas where you want to take action, but you don't take action. And in response to that realization, what do amateur coaches do? They say, well, you just need to take the action. You just need to do it. Right. And, and that is the response. And that is behavior modification. And what we know to be true, because we've done this for years now, is that that strategy never sustainably works. What else on the high level would you highlight on this idea of behavior modification, Olivia? Well, I just want to be honest that I have fallen victim to probably this out of if we look at the whole seven more than any other area in coaching. I think that the things that have shifted this for me when I have really struggled with this when I'm playing the role of coach is I'm not being curious enough to what's at the root of why they're not acting. And so again, I go back to I really would love for us to put in the show notes the five coaching qualities for leaders or great coaches. And if you guys are if you're interested in this, then the curious episode is the one you need to click on. But we all have experienced people who have had breakthrough moments and there typically comes through this sudden aha, like that was what was blocking me. That's why I wasn't being able to do what I said I was going to do. And if you're experiencing someone bumping up against the same, like I just have to do it, I, I can't, or, but I'm not acting on it over and over. Well, then there's something blocking them like that. Like you can feel it in your body when there is something keeping them from doing something and you just have to slow down and be curious enough to ask questions. And honestly, I've gotten this so much from you, Alex, like you're very masterful of this in a coaching situation. So I'd love to hear you like when you feel that in your body, someone's bumping up against something. What are questions that you generally go to to help see what's what's there? What, what are they running into? I appreciate the question. First of all, I think the principle we keep in mind is beliefs drive behavior. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a pattern of repeatedly not doing, we should not uh, approach ourselves or approach the person we're coaching with criticism. Rather, to your point, we should approach them with curiosity and, and we should start to un understand, OK, well, we are behaving in a certain way right now. And that way is not in alignment with what we say we want. So what is the belief that is driving the behavior that we currently are taking? And so, uh, I mean, there's so many arenas that we could look at, but let's, let's maybe take an example of 
working in the business versus working on the business. Okay, so we're, we're constantly working in the business and every call that we have with our coach is the same thing. I just feel like I'm on this treadmill. Uh, some months sales are up and we're feeling great. Some months sales are down and we're feeling awful. But uh, there's never this time where it's like, oh man, I actually made strategic progress to do different things from a leadership perspective to move the business forward up and ahead of where it currently is. It's just, we're, we're drowning in the business. And maybe every single call they have with their coaches, I wanna spend one hour a week working on the business, not in the business. And then you meet a month later and you say, how'd it go? And they say, I, to be honest with you, it was such a busy month, I didn't do it. And you say, okay, well, do you, is that because you don't wanna do it? Or is it because, is it because something else happened? They say, oh no, I wanna do it, it just got really busy. And you say, okay, well, what do you need to do to do it this week? And they say, I just need to do it. For the professional coach, never, never, never accept that answer. I just need to do it is not an effective answer. It's not a comprehensive answer because of course you just need to do it. That was the answer a month ago. You didn't do it though. So, but then it goes another month and they still haven't done it. And they say, oh, well, sales were really down this month. So we had to, we had to do a lot of work associated with sales being down. You say, okay, did you want to do this? Like, do you want to work on the business? And they say, yeah, I want to do it. I, I just haven't done it yet. So that's where we got to dive in from a coaching perspective and we got to start getting to the beliefs. And uh, there are a multitude of ways that we can come at this, but I want to know what this person believes about where they are currently. Like, I want, I want to know what are the emotions that are driving their actions right now. I want to know what their perspective of other people's opinions and perspective of outside approval is of them right now. And then I also want to know their beliefs associated with their stated vision. And so what that would look like is like, you're on this treadmill right now. And my bet is, you know this, but I'd like to confirm it with you. Like, do you agree that you're on a treadmill right now? Yeah, I agree with that. That's exactly what it feels like. Okay, well, tell me for a second, like, what does it feel like to be on the treadmill? Oh man, it just feels tired. It just like, it feels exhausting. And do you have this belief in you that like, you're going to get off the treadmill by doing what you're doing. Oh, no, like stepping back and looking at it. I know I'm not. Okay, so I guess my question to you would be, why, like, why do you keep doing it then? Like, what do you think is behind that? And, and what's crazy is once you get to that why question, you start peeling back layers. And at first you start by hearing, okay, well, I, I just keep having to work in the business because it's the only thing I know. And then you say, okay, well, why is it the only thing you know? Well, because, I mean, honestly, I, I, I haven't had a job outside of this one. And I, I guess working with my dad in the business that he owned. Okay, what, why do you think those were poor examples? Well, honestly, like, I always feel like whenever I was around my dad, I felt like I was never doing enough. And because I felt like I was never doing enough around my father, well, I... I guess, you know, this is the first time I've thought of this, but I kind of still act that way today. And then you just start going deeper. And it's like, holy cow. And this is where you cross the line into therapy real quick, right? And, and, and we're not therapists, but you start digging into, okay, so the reason why you keep jumping on the treadmill is because you've got this perception of inadequacy that's rooted in your past and you feel as though you need to constantly be catching up. Mm. And until we address that belief, 
we will never do anything different. That, that was a, a long conversation with myself to serve as an example that I just had. I sound like a schizophrenic person right now, but uh, anything stand out in that? Oh, my goodness. So as I hear you talk, there's two things that I think every coach needs to get to the root of when they're talking to someone, and that's motivation and emotion. And so that's exactly what you did in that conversation. You got to well, what's the emotion that, that you're feeling? And you got to that pretty quickly. Like question number two kind of started showing the emotion. Okay, what's motivating that emotion? And that took a number of levels to get down to. But once a coach has that, well, that's something we can work off of. I think that I've been in the seat many times where I've seen Alex do just that, have a not schizophrenic, fantastic conversation with himself, giving an example. And I have this knee jerk reaction to copy it exactly because the questions were so good. Just take a step back and say, are my questions getting me closer to understanding someone's emotion and someone's motivation? And if they're doing that, then you're moving the topic forward. Yeah, Olivia, that's one of the things that I love about our working relationship is that you have this ability to take an, an example where I sound like a schizophrenic person and you have the ability to simplify it. And I think that's exactly what you just did. You kind of simplified it into what are we searching for in the Q&A portion of that conversation. It's motivation and emotion. And specifically, emotion often drives behavior. This is, I, I just pulled this up because I, I think it's so relevant to what you just said. It's it's an excerpt from Chris Voss's book, Never Split the Difference. Chris Voss was an FBI hostage negotiator that teaches negotiation. And in so many ways, coaching can be a form of negotiation. You are negotiation with the person in service of their best interests. And this is the excerpt that he really hits home the neuroscience behind what Olivia just said. He says, the amygdala is this little organ in the middle of your head, and it's the nerve center of all our emotions. There were neuroscience experiments that were done where they put people in MRIs, functional magnetic resonance imaging equipment, so that they could watch the electrical activity in people's brains. Then they induce the negative emotion by showing a photo to them. The photo might make them feel sad, angry, lonely, hurt, upset. They knew the photo would trigger some sort of a negative emotion. They showed the people the photo and they simply said, what are you feeling? They told them to identify it or to label it. And every time that the person self-labeled, they saw the electrical activity in the negative part of the amygdala decrease every single time. Now, when we first started on labels in a hostage negotiation, we called them emotion labels, and we used it as a very self-defining skill. You labeled emotions. You heard an emotion, you put a label on it. If somebody sounded angry, you said, you sound angry. And if that negative emotion is there, that label will reduce the negative emotion. And so the reason why I wanted to highlight that is because in the process of digging, we go from, I just need to do it. You say, I don't accept that answer. Let's get to the belief, the motivation or emotion that's driving that answer. And the emotion that they have associated with the particular action they're talking about, whether it's exercising or eating healthy or working on the business or having a challenging conversation, there are emotions associated with doing hard things, right? The emotion that they have associated with that thing, it owns their brain. Like it has a grip on their amygdala. And the way that you reduce that grip is you get them to name what that emotion is. 
And it's wild. We may say, okay, well, but that's not still, it's still not the action item, but it's wild because what happens when they label that emotion, they start to realize, oh, that's nothing. That's not real, right? The inadequacy I feel associated with my father is driving this, but it doesn't need to. I'm a free agent in this situation, meaning I get to make decisions in this situation. And so until we can get them to label the emotion or label the improper motivation, that thing owns them. The minute that we get them to label it, well, now they've incorporated that into their conscious understanding and they're able to take action and move forward with intent instead of just being owned by something that they don't understand and haven't named. I think a possible response to hearing this for the first time is that's not real. That's not going to help someone. <laughs> and that's, that is a valid response. I would just encourage people to try it. And if it doesn't work, you're no worse off. Yeah. You know, they still have to do it, but you really will be amazed that when, when you label it and take ownership of it, how then you are just able to act in a way that is that of of freedom, truly. I've seen it happen so many times. And so I love what you just said about how when it's hidden, it owns you. When it's out and labeled, you own it. And that's being on offense. And I guess probably too, it's probably fair to say that I maybe was a little bit black and white whenever I said, anytime someone says, I just need to do it, you should not accept that answer because that's that's not what professionals practice, right? Professionals exercise a lot of nuance. And to be a professional coach, you need to know, okay, is this truly something they just need to do? Or is this the third time we're having conversations around this and there's some limiting beliefs or, or lies or past that is actually getting in the way of this? The final belief that I think I would highlight as it relates to people not taking action, not moving forward, is if they don't believe that the vision of what they're going after is possible, or if they don't believe that it's worth it. So possible, worth it. The third thing I'm adding is a lack of clarity of vision. Mm -hmm. Like you can commit to an action without having any idea how it attached to something greater and grander. So Yeah, that's so good. So they don't believe that it's possible. They don't believe that it's worth it or they they don't believe it exists, right? Or they don't have, they don't have a vision for what they're chasing. And if any of those things aren't true or aren't confidently, they have firm belief in that, why would they exert the effort that it takes to take the next step? Because anytime anyone does something new ever, it always requires a lot of courage, a lot of energy, a lot of focus. And if they think it's taking them to a finish line that isn't possible, or if they think it's taking them to a finish line that isn't actually going to be satisfying for them, they're not bought into the value of the finish line, or they have zero clue what the finish line is that the action's connected to, it, the path of least resistance is to not do it. And so as coaches, one of our uh, responsibilities and opportunities with people is to dig under, like, tell me about your beliefs about this future that you're chasing. Do you believe that it's possible? Why is it possible, right? What is the evidence that you have that suggests this is possible? Because we want people to believe this in their bones, right? Number two, do you believe that it's worth it? Why is it worth it? What evidence do you have to suggest that this would be you stepping into who you're created to be? What evidence do you have to suggest that this would serve people? And then, 
draw a straight line for me how this action that we're talking about right now that you're struggling with, how it connects directly to that vision. Like, I want you to draw the clearest possible line. And a lot of this, too, is getting them to verbally process the connections associated with vision and this individual action. And I think another mistake that's not labeled on this list, but we're kind of highlighting here is that amateur coaches think that that person talking through that is for them. They think like, oh, you're talking through this so that I can hear it from you. No, that person is talking through it so they can hear themselves say it. And it is it is something that I know for a fact, Olivia, you and I, I have both observed in one-on-one conversations and on office hours that you see someone gain confidence as they talk about the thing that they're struggling with. Yeah, it's sometimes being a coach is helping someone coach themselves and have have what they're struggling with be revealed to them. Yes, because to connect to our, our first mistake that we focused on uh, in this episode, it's not helpful. It's not in their best interest to just make them dependent on you. Mm. That's not helping anyone. So with that, let's go to mistake number six. Uh, mistake number six is that uh, amateur coaches fail to align expectations. The principle associated with this is a quote we use all the time on this podcast. It's that unspoken expectations are front-loaded resentment. And so, Olivia, I'd love for you to just highlight why is expectation setting something that we really focus on in great detail as we're training one-on-one coaches within Path for Growth? I think we view it as a huge responsibility to take people somewhere, and we want to make sure that our somewhere aligns with their somewhere right? We talk about leadership is taking someone from here to there. And I could say that one of the things that we have really improved on in our coaching department over the past 18 months is having more alignment conversations around the coach and the customer's expectations. Because there's a principle that you've shared on one of our recent workshops And it was, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. And I think in a coaching dynamic, there are two people. And if those two people are working independently, they lack clarity on what the other is thinking, they don't have alignment on each other's shared goals, then that's going to fizzle quick. And there's going to be a ton of frustration because there's an investment of time, oftentimes an investment of money. But if you take time, slow down and take time to align, it it takes time to align. But if you do that, then the energy, creativity, perspective, direction multiplied by two forces who are both going in the same direction makes a drastic impact. And so we've really had to just practice the slowing down, make sure alignment happens. We do this often, and that has made a huge difference in our coaching. It really is amazing because the the word coach today, I think in many ways, it is so misused and abused, right? We were talking about on a public workshop the other day that it seems like these days everyone and their dog on LinkedIn is calling themselves a coach of something, right? And to some people, that word means expert who has all the answers. To some people, it means practitioner that asks curious questions. To some people, that means teacher, right? To some people, that means spiritual guide. And, and so from a coaching perspective, 
I think some of those are are incorrect. And the reason why I think they're incorrect is because they're unhelpful. But there's actually a high degree of variation within coaching that can be very helpful. And you can accomplish similar things in different ways. I think things really start to break down when you have expectations about the type of coach or leader that you're going to be towards someone and what you're opting in for and what you can commit to providing them and what you what is the value you believe you're able to give to them. And then you've got half of that equation on your side and that is never voiced. Meanwhile, someone else is coming in from LinkedIn land or maybe you hired someone and this is someone that you're coaching on your team and they're coming to you and all of their experiences are relates to coaches, relates to the previous company they worked for, or relates to coaches that they've seen on webinars, or relates to different types of coaches. And it it is inevitable that people are going to have different understandings of what that role and what that relationship looks like. It can start that way. It just can't stay that way. And, mm-hmm. and so we got to make sure, hey, here's what you can expect to receive from this relationship from me, from my interactions with you, from the way we communicate everything down to like, you can text me all the time or like, you you know, that's not how this works. And I want to know what are you expecting to get out of this relationship? And I think amateur coaches don't have the confidence to properly set expectations on their end and then don't also have the curiosity to ask the customer or the person they're leading what are you expecting? What would be a home run for you in this engagement, in this meeting, in this quarter, um, for this specific duration of time? Hmm. Oh, said in a different way, I'm having flashbacks to probably 10 years ago. I was training to be a coach at a fitness facility called Iron Tribe, which essentially is like think CrossFit-esque style workouts. And the gentleman who was facilitating the weekend training to become a coach, he said something so brilliant that I've applied many times in life. But he basically said, is it your goal for them to do a box jump or is it their goal for them to do a box jump? Because you're going to approach it very differently if it's just your goal versus their goal. And that was probably my first lesson at alignment. I didn't even know it. And so I think what you just said, though, to tie it is the confidence and curiosity. So the curiosity is, let's make sure we both have the same goal and ask enough questions that we're on the same we're on the same page. But the confidence is, as I remember uh, then coming at it from like, so do you want to do a box jump? Like that was (laughs) people pay coaches to have an idea of the direction they should be going in. And so that ratio of confidence and curiosity, you need to make sure you're not over leveraging one or the other. Mm -hmm. So good. The final thing I would say on this, and then if there's anything else you'd like to add, is that I think that um, we can do a lot of the groundwork to ensure we avoid mistake four by doing mistake six well. So what I mean by that is we can do a lot of the groundwork to serve people well instead of just pleasing them by properly setting expectations. I once had a conversation with someone where it was nested in a really solid relationship. I felt strongly that this gentleman and I had great context together and we had worked together previously. And and I just 
looked at him at a certain point because he was talking about working with me in a coaching capacity. And I just said, I just want to be very honest with you. But the reason why I'm being honest with you is because I want what's in your best interest and I really care about you. So I prefaced it with that, right? I, I basically wanted to ensure that he knew I'm trying to serve you here. And then I said, my perception of the possibility of our engagement and the value that our working together could provide to you, my perception of it is that right now you are surrounded by a bunch of people that are impressed by you. And I think that the reason why people are impressed by you is because you're creative and you're energetic and you're a good communicator. And I said, and those things are all true. However, when it comes to your actual results, I'll be honest with you, they're not very impressive. And I think that right now, one of the great deficits in your sphere is that you don't have anyone that is telling you they're not impressed. And I said, if you're going to move forward with me, my commitment to you is that I am going to refuse to be impressed by you. And we're just going to focus on what are the actions that we're taking to move forward and what's getting in the way of those. And what was so good is, is like we're in an effective relationship right now, me and this gentleman, right? And I, uh, I think that that's really, really powerful that we're in that relationship because we're able to work well together. And I think it's really important to understand that the reason why we're able to work well together is, number one, I voice that. So I don't feel this pressure to have to please him because I know, well, he signed up for this, right? I told him, I, like, I'm not going to try to impress you. But then also, when I come in with my arms folded and I'm just like asking him a bunch of questions to try and justify what he's doing and, and why it actually makes sense, and I am pushing him to the wall in terms of my critique of the actions that he's taking taking or not taking. It's like, it's exactly what he expected. And, and he knows, hopefully, and, and has affirmed that he knows that like the purpose of that is serving his best interest. It's not obviously to beat him up. And, and so I think that if we properly set expectations, we're laying the foundation to be able to serve people well. I think we should do a whole podcast episode where we unpack that whole conversation you just shared because there was a lot, a lot in there. But you mentioned Chris Voss earlier and something that he talks about is diffusing the bomb. And I typically think about that in a sales conversation, but it absolutely applies in a coaching conversation. The gist of it is you express very proactively the things that you think will detonate a conversation or a relationship and you and you explode it at the outset. And the reason that you do this is because you don't want to be in this playing on your heels reactive mode when you're in these high stakes situations. And so that's exactly what happened in that conversation. I'm going to express right now that I'm not impressed with you because your results don't speak for themselves. So now it's out there. And now I don't have to play this coach position from this posture of fear. We can point back to Alex, do you remember or do you remember what I said a few months ago about about the, the results thing that's happening now? And we all have this shared understanding that that was the, the measuring stick of all future. And so you want to think, what are future conversations that I want to be able to be impacted by this first expectation setting, which is the measuring stick for all future conversations? 
Yeah, that's right. And so every coaching conversation, you know, if you're if you're in the same environment that we're in, right, from the sales conversation to when you're actually in a coaching relationship with someone all the way up till their 12th coaching conversation, right? Every coaching conversation is a deposit into the long term. It's never just the call. It's never just the meeting. We are always depositing into this context bucket that we're able to withdraw from. And if we do that with a high degree of intentionality, we're going to look up and say, oh, my gosh, we've got such a bucket of of wealth and riches and context to be able to draw from together. With that, let's jump to mistake number seven. Uh, Mistake number seven is that the amateur coach falls for a delusional superiority complex. Uh, I I love to know because we haven't talked about point seven together yet. What's the first thing that comes to mind for you whenever we talk about that idea of delusional superiority complex? When I think of a delusional superiority complex, the first thing that comes to mind is This person who's coaching thinks they have it all figured out. And I think that's something why I really enjoy coaching at Path for Growth is that we, one, say that we are practitioners, that we don't coach anything that we don't actually do, but that, two, we're in this building in public. And so I typically use my mistakes as opportunities to coach through them. And so a delusional superiority complex is, One, you think you're better than the person you're coaching. Two, you think you have it all figured out. But then three, none of that's actually two because it's delusional. And so something that you said to me the other day in in a conversation that I wonder if it applies here is um, the things that are your blind spots are most likely going to be the things that become your biggest weaknesses. And it was in a completely different situation. But I think that if we want to unpack that, I think it does apply here because you don't have a base in reality. And so that's the delusional part. And part of why you don't have a base in reality of what your blind spots are is because you think so highly of yourself. And in some ways also probably thinking less of the person you're coaching. So what comes to mind when I think of of number seven? That's right. And I think it actually, I didn't think about this when we created this outline, but I think it builds uh, in some ways really well and in some ways really horribly on the previous mistake, because sometimes people enter into a relationship with a coach and their expectation is, oh, this person is going to be my sage this person is going to be my quote unquote savior in some ways. This person is going to be my guru and this person is going to be my expert. And you cannot be all of those things. I don't care how smart you are. You cannot be all those things. And if you don't properly reset expectations that you're not an expert, that you're not this sage, you're not going to be their guru, you're not the person with all the answers, rather you are a person that is practicing, that has a host of experience, that is reflected on those experiences, that has had a bunch of conversations, that spends a lot of time studying these things. If you don't present that image, then you will start to believe people's perspective of you. 
And you will start to believe, oh, I'm the one with all the answers because that's the way people treat me. Or I'm an expert because that's what people call me. Or I am this hyper wise sage. And <laughs> let's be very clear. The reality is that most of that, if not all of that, is probably not true, right? You spend a lot of time in this very particular area and what you need to remember is that your goal is not to be grown, it's to be growing. And the day that you think you're grown, you stop growing and therefore you have limited and capped your ability to move forward. But it's worse than that in a coaching relationship. Anytime you cap your ability to move forward, you also cap anyone that's relying on you to serve them, right? Because you've turned off the faucet to your growth. And so it's just so crucial that we don't read the press clippings uh, about our expertise or things like that. We just got to believe I'm a fellow practitioner that's just doing a job. I'm just providing value. There could very well be a 7B under this, make the list a little longer, a fall for a delusional inferiority complex. I think I may actually, with the people we work with, see that more often than superiority. And I think about how people fail to get into the coaching seat because they feel like, well, why would anyone want to listen to me? Um, I actually can think of a number of customers that I've worked with who, who fall into that. And I can think of so many times being on calls with people who are in industries that I know nothing about, truly nothing. And the amount that someone can coach from a place of knowing nothing just because they're curious and can ask questions from a novice eye is, is a lot. And so I think don't put yourself on the sidelines as a coach until you feel like you've arrived. Yes, really, really good. And, and in some ways, that means you probably need to readjust your expectations of what coaches, because you believe that coach is being an expert if you think you can't coach, right? And in reality, it's not being an expert. It's just being the person that can ask really solid questions in so many ways. And so I think that's worth highlighting as well. The final thing that I really wanted to highlight for anyone that is pursuing a profession of being a mentor or coach that I think is really important is you can start to have interactions with people where you're like talking to them and they, it's clear and they will even tell you, I haven't read as many business and leadership books as you have. And I, and I don't know as much about personal growth that you know. And I don't think about goal setting the way you think about goal setting. And uh, they can simultaneously start to beat themselves up for that. They'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be what you are, right? Like you just, you know so much about this. And then you can start to believe them as they beat that up. It's like, oh man, if they tried really hard, they could get there, but they're just not there right now. Here's the thing that I would really caution you to keep in mind. Coaching is your full-time job. Business leadership and personal growth are your full-time job. Like that is like what you do for a living, right? And so you better, like if you don't know more about that, you're out of a living. You're not paying the bills. Conversely, like us expecting that this person that you're engaging with knows as much about that as you would be the same as us expecting you to know just as much about construction and excavation projects, because that's what they do every single day. And there's no way you know that, right? And so just remember, coaching is a skill. Coaching is a talent. Coaching is a gifting. 
and it doesn't carry any more value than other giftings. It doesn't carry any more impact than other giftings. It's just the one that you've chosen to focus on. And the good news is, is that you can focus on that and make a great impact. You should just never anticipate that people that don't do that as their full-time job should or want to be on the same page as you. The reason why they're paying you to do this is because it's your full-time job. So the worst thing you could do is shoot yourself in the foot and become an arrogant (laughs) you-know-what about your understanding of this area. I get a little bit passionate about that, Olivia. (laughs) (laughs) As you should. As you should. (laughs) Okay, with that, let's wrap up the seven mistakes that amateur coaches make. And then what I'd love to hear from you after we kind of review these, Olivia, is just uh, why this matters for impact-driven leaders and what they should do with it out of these two episodes. Number one was dogpiling action items. Number two was trying to hit a grand slam in every caller in every meeting. Number three was lack of preparation. Number four was focusing on keeping or pleasing more than serving. Number five was over-index on behavior change. Number six was fail to align expectations. And number seven was that you fall for a delusional superiority complex. Uh, Olivia, why does this matter so much for impact-driven leaders and what would you encourage them to do out of these two episodes? This matters for impact-driven leaders because you're wanting to create change in any form of what that word is. And what you have to realize about these seven things is when any of these seven, whether it's one or all of them are present, it creates noise, it creates distraction, it creates breakdown of trust, and all of those will reduce your level of effectiveness. And the level of effectiveness is directly proportional to the level of impact you have. And so if you're trying to reach someone, you're trying to reach their heart, you're trying to reach their mind, uh, you're trying to reach their actions, then you want to do so in a way that isn't putting anything in the way of distracting from that or what have you. And so I think by being thoughtful and intentional around these seven things, it's just going to maximize your ability to connect with someone in a way that matters to them. And that's ultimately going to affect your impact. Love it, Olivia. Very well said. Appreciate you for taking the time to invest what you've learned in this arena uh, for our podcast audience. Y'all know this. We're rooting for you. We're praying for you. We want to see you win. Remember, my strength is not for me. Your strength is not for you. Our strength is for service. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go.